I can hardly get enough of this uh, worship choir and how Tim is leading us in music and all those on the platform are leading us. Thank God for them. I want to say thanks be to God. Let me invite your attention to Mark chapter 16. The vision that I am uh, proposing to our church is that we would become a church that follows Jesus Christ as a local church that wins and baptizes and trains great commissionaries of all the nations, tribes, languages, and people of the Athens-Clark County region. It would behoove us then to understand what the Great Commission is, and it's a marvelous word of assurance and triumph that we find here in the text. God is a God of certain victory. He has an omni-nature. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, in other words. He's omniscient. He knows everything. And He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Because of that, every circumstance and every exigency of human life is an advantage to His cause. 2 Corinthians 13.8 We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. In the end, He wins. We therefore do not labor we do not serve, we do not strive for victory. We labor and strive from victory. It's already been won. And that is the great glad announcement of the Word of God. The challenge is not with God. In fact, the challenge really isn't even with the world, I have found. The challenge is moving God's people from a position and posture of despair and despondency to a posture of hope and faith. And from that, acting eagerly in obedience. Too often, we are tempted to pay attention to the bad news about the church and about Christian living from the world. I don't know if you're aware or not, but before every Super Bowl game... Hats and t-shirts are printed for both teams announcing that both teams won the Super Bowl. They are. However, you only see the hats and t-shirts from the team that wins. By NFL order, the other hats and t-shirts never appear on American soil. The hats and t-shirts of the losers of the Super Bowl go to other organizations like World Vision which distributes them throughout the earth where people know nothing about football. And so there are people in the earth that know nothing about football that believe the Denver Broncos won this past Super Bowl. <laughs> there may even still be t-shirts and hats announcing that the Buffalo Bills won four Super Bowls in a row from the early 90s. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to propose to you that that is much of the situation that we face today in the spiritual realm, in the realm of ministry. The prognosticators and the pundits and the doomsdayers are saying the church is over and in decline. They find that Christian morality is a horrible thing and they're terribly offended that we declare Jesus is the only way. I want to make a pronouncement that really is not difficult to pronounce but this is the best day to know Jesus, and this is the best day to serve Him, according to what we read in the Scripture. 
Jesus declares his great commission from a posture of triumph. He declares it and does not stutter and he does not hesitate. He is triumphant. And that's why on December 21st, I want to call our church to a great commission, Commitment Sunday. In a very general way, I want to ask you, as the Lord leads you, as the Bible describes, to surrender your life to Christ to do your part in the Great Commission. I can't quite specify what that is. The Lord will do it. We'll help you. But that's one thing I want to ask you to commit yourself to. And then I want to ask you to surrender your prayer life to Christ. To pray at 714 every morning. If you forget the morning, then the evening. For revival, those who need Christ and for our Act 22 project. And I want to ask you specifically to pray for Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, uh, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And then I want to ask you on that day to surrender your resources to Christ, to tithe and to give offerings as God leads you to give offerings. Now, before we read Mark chapter 16, I do need to make a textual note here. Some of your modern translations put verses 9 through 20 in brackets. I think that is far too bold. I know a little bit about textual analysis and textual criticism, and what I do know is the uh, editors of the modern translations of the Scripture were far too bold in placing that there. I'm personally a little offended by that. I understand, but... There's too much supposition and speculation involved in that science to put brackets anywhere in the Scripture. This text here from verses 9 through 20 appears in almost all the ancient texts of the Gospel of Mark. The content of this text is found actually in Matthew 28 and John chapter 20. So whatever's taught and described here is taught and described in other places in the Scripture. Justin Martyr quoted verse 19 in A.D. 155. And so the textual note is too bad, and if you take offense at it, I I don't blame you. I will tell you, I am certain today, as I preach verses 9 through 20, I am preaching the Word of God. Jesus then, in this text, described the Great Commission in terms of triumph. Beginning in verse number 9. Now when He rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, and they will speak with new tongues, and they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And so then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The Great Commission possesses power 
to triumph over every obstacle. Over what can the Great Commission triumph then? Well, there are several things found in the text, and the first is this. The Great Commission can triumph over doubt. Now, the Old Testament and the Jewish people required that personal testimony, for it to be valid and legitimate, especially in a court of law, be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15, Matthew 18.16, 2 Corinthians 13.1, 1 Timothy 5.19, Hebrews 10.28, all substantiate that point, that it was not enough for something to be communicated of import, especially in a court of law, only by one witness, there had to be two or three eyewitnesses. That's why we have four Gospels. God surpassed that requirement and includes not only one Gospel and not only two and not only three, but four Gospels, all exalting Jesus Christ as God, Savior, and Lord of the world. In Mark chapter 16, we have three eyewitnesses to the life of Christ, the living Jesus, after his crucifixion. He appeared after his death to Mary in verses 9 through 11. And then he appeared to two others in another form. He appeared bright and brilliant to Mary in one, appeared in disguised form in verses 12 and 13 till the end of the encounter uh, to two others. And then he appeared to the eleven in verse number four, and each of them reported it. Now Christ appeared to as few as one and to as many as 500 at one time. He appeared to one, he appeared to two, he appeared to 11, he made, uh, he made six other appearances, and then he appeared to 500 at one time. He made 10 different appearances. And again, appearing to as few as one and to as many as 500 at one time. At least 520 people saw him alive after his death. And I'd like to ask the legal crowd in our worship center today, how would you like to have 500 eyewitnesses to an event as testimony in a court of law? How persuasive would 520 witnesses, more than 520 witnesses be to testimony in a court? Ladies and gentlemen, even Elvis doesn't have that many eyewitnesses to his life after death. And so there is not a good reason to doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was crucified and he died proven by his burial. He was risen from the dead. And of all other ancient events that have ever taken place, it is easiest to verify the life of Christ after his death, therefore his resurrection, more so than any other ancient event. When you trust the death and resurrection of Christ, you're not simply trusting faith, you are trusting historical fact. He's alive and risen from the dead. And there's enough here to overcome doubt. So the Great Commission is the message of the resurrection, and it can triumph over doubt. But there's a second thing it triumphs, triumphs over. Not only doubt, but the Great Commission can triumph over depravity, human sinfulness, wickedness. And there are several elements here in the text that imply his sufficiency when we meet depravity. Notice first the sweeping territory of the Great Commission. That implies triumph. Verse number 9, he met with Mary, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Jesus 
is not intimidated by the spiritual world. He's not intimidated by demonic forces. He claims the spiritual realm, and he claims to be Lord over the forces of darkness. He meets a young lady possessed of seven demons, or a man of 2,000, and he is still Lord in the face of it all. Evil powers are frightened by him. He's never been frightened by them. So he claims the world of the demon-possessed and the dark forces. But then, verse number 10, she told those who'd been with him as they mourned and wept. Jesus not only claims the satanic world, but the sad world as well. Those who mourn and weep. No one wants to experience mourning or weeping, but ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is Lord over every sorrow. He is Lord over every tear. He's Lord over everything that breaks the heart and produces mourning. He's not intimidated by it all. That happens to be his opportunity. And so he claims the world of the weeping and the mourning. And then verse number 15, look what he says there. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There is nothing in all the world and there's nothing among any of the creatures of the earth that intimidate him, that give him pause, that cause him panic. Jesus Christ claims to be Lord over it all. He wants it all. He intends to claim it all. The Great Commission then is adequate for the spiritual world. It's adequate for the sad world. And it's adequate for the rest of the world that we may or may not be able to name. He claims it all. Abraham Kuyper said, there's not a square inch in the whole realm of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, Mine! It's all His. He is Lord over all. And so He sends His people out into a sweeping territory of the Great Commission. But then, not only the sweeping territory implies triumph, but the simple tasks of the Great Commission imply triumph. In other words, effectiveness is within reach. Verse 15, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. The tasks are very simple. Preach and baptize. That means that effective ministry is within the grasp of the most sophisticated church on one hand and the most modest church on the other. The most gifted Christian on one hand and the most simple Christian on the other. The established church in the southern United States and the World Harvest Center that meets under a broom tree in northern Nigeria. It is all within reach. Effectiveness is within the reach of every child of God. Dr. Chris will said about the Apostle Paul when he arrived in Rome in Acts 28. He said Rome was a city of slavery, but Paul did not center his message on slavery. Rome was a city of lust, but Paul did not center his preaching on lust. Rome was a city of economic injustice, but he did not center his preaching on the equal distribution of wealth. Rome was a city of violence and built on the spoils of war, but he did not preach pacifism. Instead, he preached the power of the cross to save. And within a few centuries, these cruel enemies of God and man collapsed in Jesus Christ crown Lord of all. The preaching of the gospel provokes its own social reaction. It initiates and provokes a chain reaction. If you want a new society, you must first win new men and women to Jesus Christ. And he is able to do it every 
time. The way, to, the, the way to give the world the materials it needs to build the kingdom of God is to win men and women to Jesus Christ. Verbalize the gospel and baptize the convert and Jesus Christ will do the rest. Amen. The simple task of the Great Commission implied triumph. But there's a third thing that implies triumph. And that happens to be the saving terms. You know, some people are very confused about what it means to be made right with God. In fact, they may misread verse number 16. I want to make sure you understand. The only way to avoid being made right with God, the only way to be condemned is to not believe in Jesus Christ with the biblical faith. If you're saved and baptized, the scripture promises, you will be saved. But the only way to be condemned is to disbelieve in Jesus Christ. And I do not mean by that simply to agree with Him, but cast your poor soul at the Savior's feet. In fact, throughout the Scripture, it says believe into in the Greek text. You cast yourself into, you commit yourself into, you entrust yourself into Jesus Christ like you do your paycheck into a bank or your children into the care of another. That's what you do with your heart and soul and life. But too many are confused. It reminds me of the fellow that walked forward one Sunday during a revival service. And the pastor met him and said, what uh, do I need to pray for you about? He said, pray for my hearing. And so he put his hands on his ears and prayed for him and asked God to heal his hearing and took them away after saying amen. He said, how's your hearing now? He said, I don't know. It doesn't take place till Wednesday at the courthouse. (laughs) I want to make sure you understand We don't need to have any confusion whatsoever over the meaning of the gospel of Christ. You see, you do not do the work. Jesus did the work at the cross and in the resurrection. You simply cast your faith in Him and avoid condemnation, therefore, when you do, and experience His great salvation. Now, there's an assumption here in the text that unfortunately can be offensive to the modern world. I pray it won't be offensive to you. But it's the most obvious thing in the world. And in verse 16, it's wrapped up in the last word there in the English text, condemned. We need to be saved from the wrath of God because we're condemned in it. That's the reality. God is a king with the court system and laws and sentences. And he has sentenced the human race to death because of its sins. Sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of disposition, sins of avoidance, sins that are intentional, all sorts. It is very easy, have you noticed, to be a sinner before God. It really is. But God is not satisfied with that, so He sent Jesus to die on the cross in our place. In this legal system, He allows a substitute. And so when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was suffering capital punishment. He bled in our place. To make him Lord, God raised him from the dead, and he seated at his right hand, dispensing salvation to anyone who rushes and flies and flees to him and embraces him as Lord and as Savior. These are the saving terms. And so, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. What does that mean for me? Well, let me ask you something. Let's say you'd gone a few days without water. And you found a table someplace with a card that said free water. And 24 24 bottles of water appeared there. What would you do with that water as a thirsty person? Do that with Christ. Let's say that bombs are flying and shells are bursting. And you are in a war zone and you see a shelter. What would you do? 
Do that with Jesus Christ because you desperately need to. These are the saving terms of the gospel of Christ. So the depravity of the world then has never intimidated Jesus Christ. His great commission and gospel are sufficient for every reality of human life. Jesus Christ, with his gospel and great commission, can make a colony of heaven out of China, a tabernacle of praise out of India, a preview of the kingdom of God out of Ferguson, Missouri, a harbinger of hope at University Oaks, a fruitful tree at Lake Miller and Huntington and Sycamore, and a force for Christ's interests even in Athens, Georgia. Jesus is not intimidated by any depravity. So the Great Commission can triumph over doubt and depravity, but it can triumph over a third thing, and that is the Great Commission can triumph over difficulties. In these sad days, leaders of our world are heartbroken and desperate. They do not know where to turn. For 50 years and longer since World War II, they have been throwing their best money at the challenges and difficulties of our world. And pundits offer their punditry, prognosticators offer their prognostications, politicians often offer no more than posturing. Does anyone have a solution? Can't anyone affect change? I want to let you know, when Jesus Christ announced this great commission in the first century, the world was far worse than what it is today. And yet, this is what he offered. He offered triumph. So imagine this. First, Christ's triumphant promise inspires hope in difficulty. Verse 17 and 18. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new languages. Usually it's best to read tongues in the New Testament as languages, human languages, that a person can speak miraculously without learning them because of a gift of God. Then they will take up serpents. Now, it doesn't mean we necessarily need to have a snake handling service. Paul, Paul accidentally came upon that. But there's no command to have a snake handling service. And Tim, I wanted to make that clear this morning. <laughs> and if they happen to drink anything deadly, which they might do having been poisoned by authorities of the state leading to their execution, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Everyone, every one of these promises except the poison was fulfilled in the book of Acts is what took place. Jesus has a promise that inspires hope. In other words, until God wants you into heaven, you're invincible. And he promises. But then Christ's triumphant position inspires hope and difficulty as well. Look what he says in verse number uh, 19. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received. He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He was received. He was welcomed into heaven. After all that he had said, he was received and welcomed into heaven. After everything he spoke, words that cause controversy today, he was still received up and accepted into heaven. Heaven welcomed him. And then it goes on to say he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, this indicates his position. First, he has a position of acceptance and affection. Heaven received him. And can you imagine what a glorious and joy-filled experience that was to have the Son of God absent for 33 years for him to return back home? What a marvelous thing. The fact that he was received up means, into heaven, means he was welcomed. 
That means what he said and what he did was embraced and approved of. And so today, Jesus Christ is the object of all the affections of heaven. Heaven loves him. Heaven is pleased with him. And all the force and all the authority and all the power of heaven is given to him. And heaven just waits for him to want something and executes it and fulfills it. That's where Jesus Christ is. And then he has a position of authority and ability. He can fulfill promises. He is the darling at the right hand of the Father. And the Father has given him authority. His position inspires hope and difficulty. But then his past inspires hope and difficulty. Verse number 20 talks about a past of faithfulness. They went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. They walked along here and they walked along there. They went as far as India and China. They went over to Spain. They went north. They went south. And the Lord was with them every step of the way. And when you obey him, he is with you too. It's a history of confirmation. It says, and confirm the word by the signs that follow. God will do something in power by the Holy Spirit to testify of truth. That's why I have no problem giving a Bible to someone who doesn't know Christ, even if they don't believe it. I encourage them. Read it if you're humble. If you're not humble, stay away from it. It'll burn you up. It'll increase your accountability before God. Well, that gets them stirred. And often they'll read. In fact, I would say to you easily, one out of every five persons to whom I share the gospel is reading the Bible. And God manifests His power and presence through the Word. God will do something to confirm the Word that you share with the world. Then it's a history of restoration. It goes on to say, And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. The ones that just denied him. The ones that just fled him. And the ones that just doubted and disbelieved the testimony of the others. I don't know what you've done to embarrass yourself, your God, or your family. But if you'll repent with a broken heart, God can restore you. And he can use you again. And then it's a history of expansion. And after that, Jesus Christ himself sent, out, sent them out from east to west the sacred imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And so now his faith and now his word covers the globe. And there are billions upon billions giving praise to him today. So the history of biblically defined Christianity inspires hope. The days were worse then, but with better results. And it can happen again. What you find in this text then is that when you find, you find that when Jesus Christ is in charge and in control, his work bears his character. The work that he performs looks an awful lot like him. Well, here he's risen from the dead, and so his work in his people takes on the character of resurrection. Jesus Christ is willing to work with resurrection power in everyone who obeys him. That gives me a different perspective on Jesus. And Jesus is not any longer the babe in the manger. Oh, we'll celebrate that in December. And thank God that's true, but he's gone past that. And Jesus certainly isn't a hippie social worker of liberal Christianity. Oh, he's more than that. A clear glimpse of who Jesus is can be gained from Revelation 19, where he returns in conquest and victory. The Son of God is seated at the precipice of heaven, ready to return at any moment and to implement his kingdom. I don't know what you're fearing today, but you need to fear him more. Back in 1968, Leon Sermelian wrote a work entitled The Techniques of Fiction Writing. 
And he gave counsel to those who would write of heroes and villains, saints and sinners in novels. He said, in your fictional writing, the saint should be dangerous, more dangerous than the sinner. The hero should be more dangerous than the villain. Some kind of power, some kind of opportunity, some kind of insight that makes him more lethal than the villain. I don't know too much about fiction writing, but I know something about the Word of God. And I want to say to you, whatever is causing you fear from following Christ and hindering your way to follow Him, whatever is causing you to disobey the Lord and His great commission, I want to say to you, someone greater than your fears is here. Fear Him. Your fears are not your most fearsome foes. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Do not fear Him who can kill only the body and not the soul. Fear Him who can kill both body and soul in hell. You have a greater master a greater Lord, and what a silly and foolish thing, and what a wicked thing, to resist Him because of little gremlins of fear, when the master of the universe is calling you to Himself. Your greatest fears are not the greatest fears. You should fear disobedience to your King more than all the others. From you today, He wants a faith in Christ and His cross and resurrection alone where you stop and terminate any trust or any faith in your virtue, which is a silly myth, where you cease to trust any work or anything else other than Christ in this cross for the hope of salvation. And he wants a faith from you that will put you into the baptistry to go public for Jesus Christ. You did that one day when you put on a team's uniform. You've done that when you put on a wedding ring. It's time to put on baptism for Jesus Christ. The scripture does not know of a Christian who is not baptized. I don't know what your fears are, but you have someone greater to fear than your fears. And then he wants a faith from you that not only narrows your hope to the cross and resurrection of Christ and not only puts you into the baptistry, but he wants a faith from you that puts you into his mission active and obedient. Before you come to Christ, you need to know the cost. There is a cost. He wants you to follow Him. And just like He looks all over this earth and says, all of that is mine, He looks at you today and says, I want everything you've got and I won't leave anything alone. You have to know that before you come. There is a cost to discipleship, but let me make sure you understand, there's a greater cost to resisting it. And Christ is your only hope. And you need to come today. Would you pray with me, please? Savior of all victory and triumph, thank you that nothing is larger and more fearsome than you. You are intimidated by nothing. Help our friends today to see truth and let their fears be in the right proportion. Fear you greater and fear their current fears that keep them from you lesser. I pray for a faith today in the hearts of friends that trust Christ alone for salvation. That will put them into the baptistry to publicly, boldly, eagerly identify with Jesus Christ. And a faith that will put them into your mission. Would you please grant it for Christ's sake? And we're going to sing a song.
And as we sing, we're going to ask you to stand and staff will be here in the front to receive you. We want to help you with your spiritual need. But I want to encourage you today, run from your fears and run to him who alone is worthy of fear, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Savior promises to embrace you if you'll come on his terms. Would you quickly stand with me, please? I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Dear God, would you gather glory for Jesus now? And may everything in this worship center now glorify Him, especially our response. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. You come.